From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. Whenever we get a new customer in, you know, they're attracted by, you know, embedded sensors, dissimilar metals, and, you know, complex internal shapes, something tri- trips a trigger. Um, but really, then we have to walk them, as you say, through the process, what the process can do, what it can't do. Um, and what we find out is, especially, you know, for larger companies, we'll, we'll do iterative design with customers. Um, our most, most successful bar none programs, projects, where we've really made a huge difference for, for one of our customers, have inevitably been, been where, um, you know, one of our engineers has sat down with their engineers um, and, you know, almost a whiteboard. Hey, we could do this. We could do this. And those, you know, kind of designing with the capability in mind is where you get the, this, the transformational designs. That was Mark Norfolk. Mark has over a decade of experience in manufacturing, R&D, and shop floor management. He leads Fabrisonic in the commercialization of ultrasonic added manufacturing, or UAM. Mark led EWI's development and research into UAM for years, leading up to the inception of Fabrisonic, and has been with the company ever since. Prior to joining EWI, he held numerous manufacturing and management positions at Deere & Company in Moline, Illinois. Mark holds an MBA from the University of Iowa and Bachelor's of Science in Welding Engineering from The Ohio State University. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Hey, Mark, this is uh, this is actually round two since I made the boneheaded mistake of, of starting a podcast without a recording. So um, apologies if we had to do this for the audience a second time, but um, why don't we just start kind of from the beginning? So um, you're actually our second welding engineer that, from Ohio State that we've had on the podcast. And, and Jacob Rindler was, was early. I'm sure you know him. Um, but kind of where did you get your your start and kind of interested in science and kind of even going back to, to where you're from, where, where'd you grow up? Sure thing. Yeah. So uh, Fabrisonic is, is located in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm a, a native Columbus uh, resident. Um, you know, early on, probably middle school timeframe, um, I had a really cool shop teacher that uh, got me interested in cars. Uh, and at the time it was a uh, soapbox derby cars. So I made uh, several soapbox derby cars and raced them uh, had all kinds of fun, you know, evolved into high school and I started getting into things with motors and, uh, you know, that turned into trouble, but, but fun as well. Um, and so I, I think all of my, you know, science and engineering comes, you know, it's kind of derived from that, you know, you know, experience in middle school where I really got my hands on things and got to play with taking things apart, putting things together, you know, the standard engineering story. Um, ended up at uh, Ohio State University in welding engineering. Um, welding is uh, not not where I planned to go. I actually kind of was fortunate to fall into it through a series of, of odd events. Um, but welding is, is a pretty cool major in that you get a combination, um, kind of a broad base of different technologies in, in your wheelhouse. So we have electrical engineering classes, we have metallurgy classes, we have mechanical engineering classes, industrial and systems engineering. And so uh, we're pretty deep on, on welding, but pretty broad everywhere else. We have a, a good feel for overall um, systems engineering. Um, and that, that allowed me to, uh, you know, once I left school to end up at John Deere as a, as a full-time engineer, senior engineer at Deere. Um, 
And that was a great experience. John Deere is just a fantastic company to work for. Um, I was able to move around the company and see, you know, factory design, machine design, um, machine testing, you know, virtual reality, um, you know, kind of went all over um, everywhere an engineer could go uh, in Deere over a course of about 10 years. Um, after that, my wife uh, decided she had enough of, of corn. Um, corn is a great thing, but you can have too much of a great thing. So we moved back to Ohio and I ended up at uh, Edison Welding Institute. Um, EWI is a nonprofit R&D center focused on enhancing U.S. manufacturing competitiveness. Um, so basically, they're a nonprofit. At the end of the year, if, if they make money, um, they can't give it to employees. That's illegal. They can't give it to you know a board because there is none. Um, all they do is take that money and reinvest it into developing new manufacturing technologies. So as an engineer, likes to work with my hands, likes to take things apart, fantastic place to work. Um, in my role at EWI, I was a program manager managing large research projects. And one of the projects I got involved with was ultrasonic rapid prototyping. Back then we called it rapid prototyping. This was way back in the day. Um, but uh, working with this ultrasonic, ultrasonic method of joining metals to print a three-dimensional shape. And uh, part of it was I really loved this technology, really got excited by some of the things that we could do with it. And part of it is I, I pissed off a whole bunch of people at EWI and they kicked me out and said, hey, why don't you go run this, this, this company and get out of our hair for a while? Um, and that was back in 2011. So I've uh, been with Fabersonic ever since. That's awesome. So with, with that kind of connection to EWI. So can you talk about one of the challenges with just doing a startup in, in hardware is that it's capital intensive, right? You're building a machine that has parts, physical things. You have to have an office, you have to have a lab, you have to have space. You are doing some software involved in that, but it's a very different route from a startup perspective and getting going than maybe conventional software. So what was that, that those, some of those early days like? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Hardware um, anytime you, you start looking at physical hardware as a, as a product, um, you know, you're talking a 10x multiplier in, in both time and money um, to get there. Um, just because, you, like you say, you have to learn how the thing works, improve it constantly. There's lots of iterations and that's all, you know, real physical hardware. Um, we were really lucky in that we're owned by a nonprofit. So we're not owned by a venture capitalist who needs to have, you know, you know, a 10x return in two years. Uh, we're really living in mom and dad's basement, if you will, being incubated by this nonprofit where we have access to labs and space. Um, and really what it what is taken to develop the technology is, is really that time. You know, we made a, a first design of a machine and it worked, it was passable, but it's not where we are today. We're six or seven iterations down the road. And it's really about experiment, try things, see what doesn't work, see where the margins are in your design, and constantly improve that hardware till you get to the point where you have a, a fairly efficient system. Um, we're we're kind of to the place now that we've made five or six systems that were all identical. And if you'd asked me 10 years ago, if that was ever gonna happen, I would have said no. Um, but now we've got things where they're pretty stable and uh, pretty repeatable and we really know where, where the knobs are. So for you, I mean, you started at John Deere and then EWI, so fairly large organizations. Kind of what was the appeal to you to go down the startup path? I mean, much different from a, a culture standpoint, just even kind of day-to-day -day operations, like what was the appeal? The, the beautiful thing for me personally is just all the different areas that you get to touch. 
when you're an entrepreneur, you, you have to learn about money. You have to learn about marketing. You have to learn about sales as well as, you know, the engineering stuff that's already pretty fun. So it's kind of, um, you know, a, a master's degree and a whole lot of different things that, you know, as, as just an engineer, you don't get exposure to. Um, and for me, that was really satisfying getting to learn all these other nuances, these other factors um, of, of running an organization. And as a, as a small startup, everybody does everything. Um, I often joke that I'm, I'm the president and chief window washer um, in a small group, small, uh, small operation. Everyone has to do everything. And so that's part of the fun. What was the, was there something that was challenging kind of coming from an engineering background and, uh, and going into the startup space was like, there's something that was uh, not intuitive as, as you went down the path of kind of starting the company. I mean, you said you had to deal with marketing money, yeah. window washing, whatever it may be. Like, how was your technique there? I mean, I guess what, what was the, the challenge that, that, that you felt like you've had to grow the most in over the last few years? Certainly. Um, for me personally, the biggest uh, aspect was really that sales piece. You know, as an engineer, most engineers are, are fairly introverted folks that, um, you know, they're not going to say something until they're pretty darn sure that they're right. Um, and in sales, you know, environment, there's a, there's a little wider purview there, maybe a, um, a little uh, outside of my comfort zone. Um, and really it was learning how to get out there in, in front of folks and, you know, be, um, be okay with failing. Again, as a startup, we're, we're trying things that no one's ever tried before. And as an engineer, I always want to be right. I always want to get the A. I always want to get the checkbox. Um, but as, as in a startup, especially when you're trying to sell new technologies, new capabilities, um, you got to be willing to fail some in order to, to really grow um, what's possible with the technology. Uh, that, that really early on was uh, you know, something I had to work hard at. Sure. That's great. Great insight and, and great advice for someone kind of looking at, at that path as well. So let's talk about the technology. So ultrasonic kind of added manufacturing. So slightly different approach than what you might conventionally think of, of, of metals and, and the powder space and things like that. So do you want to just walk us through how it works and, and kind of what the, the core advantages of, of this approach are? Sure thing. Yeah. When people think about metal 3D printing, they typically think about taking a CAD file, slicing it into layers, and then maybe printing each layer with a little thin layer of powder. You melt it with a laser. Maybe you have an electron beam. Maybe you have a, a wire. Um, and we're similar in that we still take a CAD file. We slice that into layers. But we're now printing our layers as thin foils. Um, our, our feedstock is a foil on the thickness range of, say, five to ten thousandths of an inch. So kind of the, a little thinner than your hair. We take those those layers, we lay them down and then we roll over them with uh, what we call an ultrasonic horn. Ultrasonic welding is not new. It's been around since the, say the 1960s. Um, in the 1960s, they started using ultrasound to bond dissimilar metal wires like gold to silver, copper to aluminum. And we took that same 1960s technology that maybe used hundred watts of power and we put 10,000 watts of power into it. So we're taking these foils and we're rolling over them with a roller. And as that roller rolls over the material, it's vibrating back and forth. And that vibration is what actually creates the weld. So we're, we lay down a foil, we roll back and forth across it. And as we're doing that, we're scrubbing. Um, metals like to stick to other metals. Um, but down here on earth, all of our metals are covered completely with an oxide layer. 
as soon as you take a, a piece of metal out of a vacuum within milliseconds, it's covered with a thin, very thin layer of, you know, atoms deep of oxide. So when you slam two pieces of metal together down here on earth, what you're really slamming together are two layers of oxide, hence they don't stick. But if we take those two layers and we scrub them back and forth, and we're talking on the order of microns, so very small displacement, but we're sitting there grinding back and forth, that grinds off that oxide layer, exposes virgin metal to virgin metal, and we get a solid state bond, essentially at room temperature. Um, in aluminums, our max temp is maybe 200 F, and that's gonna be for 100 to 200 milliseconds. So it's not hot enough that we're you know, really changing the material, we're not, growing the grains, we're not changing precipitates. So we have this, this foil, we weld a layer down, we come back, lay another layer of foil, weld that down. Um, and our systems are, are what's considered hybrid, that is we have additive and subtractive in the same box. So if we wanna accomplish some sort of internal feature, we'll pause the build, come in with the CNC mill, mill away that cavity, and then we'll continue to print right over top. Um, to build the three-dimensional shape. When we're all done, we come in with a mill and mill all the external features. So we really print near net shape and then use the mill to get the exact shape that we're looking for. The three things that we do well, um, the first is weld dissimilar metals. So layer one can be aluminum, layer two tie, layer three stainless, and so forth. Trying to, excuse me one second. Ah. Um, so any metal can be printed at any layer. So from time to time, we can switch to make a mix of say aluminum and copper for, for heat rejection. Um, we can combine things like moly and steel for um, CTE mismatch. Um, so at any point in the build, we can swap materials and really put the engineering material we need exactly in the part where it needs to be. The second thing that's along the same lines is embedding electronics, sensors, controls. Um, at any point in the build, we can stop, mill out a little pocket, or even lay a sensor down and then just weld right over top of that sensor. And then that sensor is forever embodied inside of that solid metal part. Um, this is really useful for things like um, health monitoring. We can bury a sensor right at the critical location you're worried about, and then you can get data from that sensor continuously throughout the service life of the part. We can do things like embed trackers, which is, you know, big brother. Um, we can do things like um, embed controls. Uh, we actually have built a fuel injector, fuel injector uh, for a rocket motor where the, the actual control for that was buried in the part so that we could get um, laminar flow inside of the fuel nozzle. We didn't have any mechanical uh, accoutrements coming in and interfering with the flow. Um, so there's a lot of fun things you can do when you can embed electronics and, and control surfaces inside your part. The last thing we do well, uh, everybody does this well in 3D printing, and that's complex internal geometries. Um, we just accomplish our internal geometries through milling. Um, so we typically have, you know, smoother surfaces, but it's the same idea as you have in, in other printed strategies. Awesome. I've got lots of questions. <laughs> um, so one of the the... Big difference is you mentioned right off as you start with a roll feedstock versus a powder. Is, does that make it cost advantageous too? Is that more of a standard material or because you're doing it so thin, is it is it kind of a, a mute point? Pretty much all of our foils are commercially available um, okay. right off the shelf to an ASTM spec B209 <laughs> typically. Um, so yeah, it, our, 
Material price typically is insignificant in the overall price of the part. Um, just to give you an idea, aluminum 6061, our, our foil is like $6 a pound. Um, you know, stainless, we're talking $12 a pound. So it, it's kind of an order of magnitude lower than some other, you know, uh, traditional 3D printing feedstocks. Um, so that certainly is an advantage. Um, the only thing there is sometimes we, we have to uh, kind of use what's available commercially. For instance, we may want a, a sixth thou foil, but all that's commercially available is five thou. Um, so that slows our deposition down a little bit. But uh, in general, they're commercial off the shelf. And so one of the, the big broad challenges of 3D printing as a, as a whole is this idea of designing for the technology. And so I imagine kind of come at this kind of question from probably a few different angles is you're building a company, you've got this new machine, new manufacturing approach. You're trying to explain kind of how it works and what are some of the advantages. And then you have to kind of help people along, your customers along and kind of thinking about how they might use it and how they might design for a part using the technology to take in advantage of those things that it's good at um, and, and avoiding things that, that may not make sense. So um, as you've kind of grown in the company, kind of grown, grown the capabilities, how has that conversation evolved or do you see kind of people finding your technologies in, in different ways, kind of coming in? It's like, hey, I got this problem. I know you guys do kind of this ultrasonic approach. Can you help us? Like, well, how has that kind of been, um, been a part of the, the growth of the company? Yeah, that's a, that's a really insightful question. Um, if, if you look at our hours for sales, um, you know, internal hours for, for getting a sale in the door, over half of it is, is basically consulting. Um, so whenever we get a new customer in, you know, they're attracted by, you know, embedded sensors, dissimilar metals and, you know, complex internal shapes, something tri trips a trigger. Um, but really, then we have to walk them, as you say, through the process, what the process can do, what it can't do. Um, and what we find out is, especially, you know, for larger companies, we'll, we'll do iterative design with customers. Um, our most, most successful bar none programs, projects, where we've really made a huge difference for, for one of our customers, have inevitably been, been where, um, you know, one of our engineers has sat down with their engineers um, and, you know, almost a whiteboard. Hey, we could do this. We could do this. And those, you know, kind of designing with the capability in mind is where you get the, just the transformational designs. Um, you know, certainly you have to have a really good understanding of the technical engineering challenge, um, but you also have to have a really good understanding of what is possible with the technology. So, um, you know, again, half of our, half of our sales time is strictly devoted to walking customers through that. Now, Certainly over time, we hope that that evolves and, you know, there becomes a broader knowledge of our technology in the space. Uh, we're working on this America Makes program where Ohio State is making a, an educational model um, that they can then distribute to, you know, other universities for training on our specific brand of 3D printing. But I think, you know, for the foreseeable future um, in, in all of these technologies, you're going to have to have a, a processing expert and an engineering, you know, design constraint person. Um, in order to really leverage the, the power um, of 3D printing. And as you started the, as you started the company and kind of spun it out early early on, have the advantages of the technology that you thought of then kind of matched the reality of now working with a number of customers? Have they kind of been consistent or have you found that, hey, like this industry or this um, application is like 
wasn't obvious back then, or is there any kind of uh, evolution on that front? Oh yeah, yeah. So, you know the the core the core engineering capabilities I think are, are pretty well set. You know, dissimilar metals, embedded electronics, complex shapes. Those are those are the core engineering fundamentals. But the applications. Um, you know, we get applications that are so off the wall. I, I, I sometimes ask customers, are you kidding? Um, <laughs> and, and they're fantastic applications that, you know, I had no idea this was a problem. This was a thing. Um, so we, we actually do probably about half our work, I would say, is, is in, in kind of niche areas where people have had these problems for 30 or 40 years and just hadn't had a technology to solve it. Um, and of course, we didn't know about those problems when we started out on this journey. Um, we're certainly learning those and taking advantage. You know, once we know a problem exists, you know, trying to, to leverage that for more business. But uh, yeah, we're we're constantly amazed. We we have parts in in satellites and nuclear reactors. Um, you know, ten years ago, I thought you know, like everyone else, you know, additives just for aerospace. Um, but our largest customer right now is automotive. And if you'd asked me 10 years ago if, if our largest customer would ever be automotive, then I, I would have told you you were crazy. Um, but there, there's great applications that uh, really meet a need. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been exciting to, to learn. It's been a journey. I really like the way that you've described the fact that you are a hybrid process. Because I think even in, I mean, across the board and in, in, in a lot of the other 3D printing technologies, they inevitably all become hybrid because there's some level of post-processing that are in, involved. So I know kind of before we we hit record, you had mentioned um, uh, some interesting AMAM hybrid projects that, that you're doing. So kind of embedding um, different features into to build plates. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, the, the hybrid piece, um, I, I think, you know, there's several technologies out there that are going the hybrid way. Um, you know, Jason Jones with uh, hybrid 3D, um, amongst many others. Um, you know, I think long-term, you're, you're going to see hybrid become more and more popular, not, not just us, just across the board, um, because it, it is really nice to get done with your part. And when it comes out of the machine, it's done. You know, there's, there's no other handling steps. That, that, is, that, that adds a, um, a lot of, uh, of throughput into the entire system. Um, but one specific application is, uh, you know, Edison Welding Institute, EWI, are a parent. Um, they certainly have kind of one of every metal type system. You know, they have an arc DED, they have an electron beam, they have a powder bed. Um, and, you know, we sit at the lunch table, you know, outside and, and listen to our, our powder bed brethren um, complain about, you know, breaking the, the bolt heads off of a build plate or, you know, having a, a part peel up and they didn't know about it until they'd gone through a 70 hour build. And, uh, you know, we were talking to them and we're like, hey, you know, we have this ability to embed sensors, you know, in, in metal parts. You think if we embedded some sensors into your build plate, that might give you some, some insights that you didn't have before. And uh, yeah, you know, after a few beers, we came up with this idea. So we're now embedding um, fiber optic strain and temperature sensors um, in a matrix throughout a powder bed build plate. We're also doing RDD and a few others, um, but, you know, it's kind of uh, process independent. So we take a build plate, you know, somebody has a eight by eight plate with bolt holes and um, maybe an inch thick. We mill little grooves into that plate and then we lay in fiber optic sensors. Now, uh, I won't go too deep in this, but you can turn a fiber optic cable into any sensor imaginable if you have the right toy. So we put two or three fiber optic sensors and we weld over top of those with ultrasonic additive. 
So we're taking and extruding metal or crimping metal around those fibers so that we have really good interlocking between the, the fiber and the matrix. And we print, you know, maybe a hundred thou, maybe 200 thou, um, such that those fibers never see the really high temperatures of melting from, from the fusion-based print job. Um, and then as we put that into, say, a powder bed system, as, as you build layer by layer, you can actually watch the strain fields and the temperature fields evolve layer to layer. Um, actually, in the build plates, you can actually see the, la the laser raster pattern in the strain in the build plate. It, it's incredible. Um, and, you know, our original thought was this, this might be, you know, some sort of research tool to help people, you know, calibrate their models, figure out um, some uh, things that are maybe not intuitive about the strain state. Um, but what we found is it's actually a decent quality tool as well. Um, if we have, say, a, a feature that delaminates, you know, during the build, um, but never kind of raises up hard enough that it, it hits the recoder blade, uh, we can catch that, you know, instantly, you know, way before you would ever see it in the powder build, stop the build and say, hey, you know, either shut this feature off or, or, or stop the build, whatever it happens to be. Um, so we, we are now selling this as a, as a product to uh, 3D printing uh, customers. Uh, we have several out in the field where people are, are using these instrumented build plates, um, you know, to improve their other 3D printing technology. So, yeah, it's 3D printing helping 3D printing. It's uh, pretty cool. Really interesting. And so would they, these products that, you, that you've been selling, would they kind of be used for kind of qualification builds before they go to production or kind of research or a mix? We, we certainly see a mix. Um, the, the, the absolute first application is calibrating models. Hmm. Um, everyone's got these, these great, you know, 3D printing models, um, analytical models that are fantastic and do fantastic, great stuff. But all of those models have three or four cheater variables in them, inevitably. Um, and you know the modeling guys hate to talk about it, but somehow you got to calibrate those those three or four cheater variables to, to get the models to agree. And if you have data from inside the part while it's evolving, um, you can quickly tune the model. Uh, second application is really kind of QA QC, where you know you have your first build, you you analyze it to death, and you understand that this is a good build, whatever whatever method you want to use, and that changes customer to customer. Um, but then you can record the data of all your sub subsequent builds and kind of compare and contrast and, and look for problem areas in subsequent builds. So yeah, there's a lot of different uses, depends on the customer and, and what they're driving at. Um, but it, it's just another tool in the toolbox. I would never say this is you know the, the, the silver bullet that's going to fix 3D printing. I, I think long-term, you're going to have to have the thermal camera. You're going to have to have the optical camera. You're going to have to have the smart build plate, put those together to get an overall picture of what's happening in these, these really complicated systems. So you mentioned kind of you sell this as a, as a product. So as you kind of going back to kind of the business of, of Fabrisonic, um, it, it sounds like you could kind of do a combination of you have machines and equipment, hardware, mm -hmm. you sell kind of the build plate product, and yeah. then you kind of do um, you kind of contract slash kind of almost internal service bureau work for for customers is that kind of a fair characterization yeah so last year about half of our revenue was selling machines um okay. you know, some of those are kind of our standard <laughs> off-the-shelf machines some of those are custom for a specific part family um but the other half of our revenue was really contract manufacturing job shop type work um if you look at some of the you know like the aerospace customers um you know they may make 200 of something all year 
so does it make sense necessarily for them always to bring a machine in-house? Maybe not. Maybe maybe they subcontract that out. Um, then we have you know you know other customers that are making millions of parts a year, and, and they they're going to have to have a machine of their own. Um, so we kind of span the gambit. I I really like having the service bureau part of the business because it keeps us in touch with what people are trying to do. It keeps us in touch with how the machines need to be run. You know, we have expert operators here that really know the machines inside and out. And, you know, that, that continuous churn of, of service work really helps, you know, keep, keep the edge sharp, make sure our machines are constantly improving um, and getting what's needed, uh, you know, in industry. And I imagine it also hones the kind of focus on what's, feasible or kind of what's the actual design sure. space. I mean, we've, we've worked with other kind of companies in, in similar boats and um, you get really good at saying this model is not good for, for our technology from firsthand yeah. experience. And yeah, I'd get yelled if the salesman is going to get yelled at first, even thinking that this is a good idea. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's um, it's also good to have that internal capability so that you can kind of flex and, and try those harder projects. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't want to set up a, a customer to set, try a really, really hard project, you know, really try and stretch the limits of the capabilities, you know, in their own shop. Here, we can do that in a kind of a safe environment where, you know, if we fail three or four times, that's okay because we know we're, we're pushing the envelope. Um, so we're always trying, you know, even with our service work to, to push the envelope just a little bit further with every project. Um, again, so we can learn what works and what doesn't um, and expand, expand our horizons a bit. And can you talk, I mean, not to get into specifics, obviously it's kind of customers kind of uh, confidentially in place, but like with automotive or aerospace or kind of some of your big customer categories, kind of some examples, kind of applications that, that people are exploring. Our, our number one um, kind of product, if you will, or, or part family that we make is heat exchangers, bar none. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically that heat exchanger is going to have some sort of complex internal conformal shape on the inside. Um, but it's also going to have mixed materials. Typically, we do a lot of aluminum and copper mixed together. Um, you know, copper has great thermal conductivity, but it's heavy and expensive. So if you can just apply that copper in the key locations where you need to wick heat and have the rest of the structure be aluminum, um, you can make some really, really efficient designs. Uh, so that's our number one application. Um, lately, uh, we've been doing a lot of what I would consider cladding, um, putting expensive metal A on cheap metal B. Uh, so typically a customer is providing us with uh, you know, a product and then we're you know, using our 3D printing technology to add you know, five to a hundred thou of an expensive metal on the outside um, that it, it gets them out of having to weld material A to material B. We're just printing it right where it's needed. Um, another big area for us right now is electrification. Um, so we can weld aluminums, we can weld coppers, we're using foil. Um, there's all kinds of electric electrification applications where you want to join dissimilar foils into a big matrix of a complex shape. Um, and so we, we got a lot of fun fun things in the electrification world. Awesome. And one of the themes that have kind of popped up over the last few episodes is this, I mean, this is kind of November, 2021. So across the, the country, there's supply chain issues that are being manifested in the 3D printing area in different ways and lack of getting materials or some companies are getting all sorts of requests to, to make parts that would normally be made overseas. I mean, you guys are a U.S. manufacturer, kind of, kind of bringing kind of, um, 
very sophisticated technologies to to bear like what are you saying from from that standpoint does it impacted kind of your business or i mean what what's kind of the the what's changed over the last kind of two years that you may not have seen in, in the last five or as you've been kind of building the business yeah, so certainly from a supply chain on our end things that we're trying to buy um you know m- metallic foils um they're still readily available. They're just way more expensive. Um, so our incoming feedstocks have, you know, gone from, you know, four or five bucks a pound to eight bucks a pound, um, which, you know, isn't a huge deal, but it's something we, we have to, to wrestle with. Um, the second thing is when we're building machines for customers, um, you know, getting uh, components for machines, uh, even Siemens, you know, controls off the shelf, you know, simple Siemens controls, you know, right now they're quoting us a year <laughs> for, you know, input output cards, really simple stuff. Uh, you know, the supply chain's kind of falling apart in, in the machine space. Um, as far as, you know, you know, an opportunity for us, uh, you know, right now, if you want to dip braze a heat exchanger, which is a common way of, of making a complex heat exchanger, you're, you're probably looking at 54 week lead times. Um, so over a year to dip braze, a, <laughs> if you're not in line already. Um, so we're getting lots of inquiries about, uh, you know, can you use this 3D printing process to build my heat exchanger that, you know, historically I would have dip raised and, um, you know, that's certainly keeping us busy. Um, we've, uh, you know, over the last year have doubled and the year before that we doubled again. Um, so, so maybe it's, it's just really great leadership. Now there's just a lot going on right now. We've, we've just been taking advantage of, uh, you know, all, all the people that are, are really churning get parts quickly. Um, and we've just been in a perfect location, perfect situation as a company where we're growing um, to, to really to help those people out. And on that point, kind of as you've kind of grown the company, like what do you look for in kind of people that are coming out of school or starting kind of their careers in additive? Are there any kind of key traits, characteristics that you've seen that lead to successful employees or team members? Yeah, our, our biggest one is actually maybe less on the education front and more on the co-op internship front. Um, you know, we're, we're right adjacent to Ohio State University, so we try to always have one or two students on hand. Um, and, and it's great because we can test drive them, they can test drive us. Um, we, we just find our, our best employees come from people who've kind of been with us for a while, kind of understand what we're doing. And, and some people say this is not what's meant to be, and that's great. We'll, you know, we'll support them as they go on to other endeavors. But, uh, you know, if we really find a match, we, we try and you know hire those folks before they can even get applications other places. Um, from a from an education standpoint, um, really, you know, having a, a broader brush of classes, we we see more success with the the folks that have, you know, maybe um, not uh, you know not the chemical engineer who knows everything there can be about a you know, CH3 group, um, you know, great. I'm sure it has applications, but for us, we're really for people with a broad understanding um, of different technologies because, you know, on a printer, you have mechanical systems, you have electrical systems. um, And then, you know, as we're designing um, kind of throughput for parts, uh, we often get into kind of ISC type trades. Um, So we're looking for more of that broad brush approach. And so last couple of questions for, for the day. So, Kind of first is, and what piece of advice would you give people just starting their career out in in additive? I mean, even thinking about kind of joining your company or or maybe even broader. Like, is there a piece of advice that that you'd want to to share with the audience? 
the thing that we, we kind of tell all the interns um, that we have that are coming through is, is, is don't listen to the people who've been here for a while because um, we're already jaded. We already have our opinions. And uh, I mean, just this weekend, we had a, a guy, he's been here three months and he was running a machine by himself on Sunday. Um, and he came up with a solution that none of us had ever thought of. So um, be careful, especially in a, uh, a world that's changing very, very quickly. You know, you get into the 3D printing space, things are evolving day after day, very, very quickly. You have a lot of churn um, that you don't get married to ideas that, you know, as old folkies have. Um, you know, keep, keep your mind open. Always question why. Always look at, you know, how can we do this differently? Um, because in a new field, the, the odds are that the idea you have is, is probably something no one's, no one's played with before. So, Sure. And so last question, kind of what's uh, last part of the year, kind of going into um, kind of 2022, what's, what's uh, on your radar? What's exciting you? What kind of gets you up in the morning to, for the, the next few months? Yeah, so we're, we're actually booked out through March right now. So <laughs> we're, we're kind of treading water, trying to keep our heads <laughs> water. Um, but uh, next year, we, we already have uh, four, five, six machines that, that we need to deliver Q1 of next year. Um, so, you know, just getting, getting more machines out there, getting more customers going. Um, we're, we're growing. We've uh, added uh, two people last week, and we're looking for two more. So um, just, just trying to keep, keep with the growth curve and, and have a lot of fun doing it. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Mark. Apologies again for technical difficulties on my end. Oh, no worries. Uh, thanks for and, having me. And uh, we'll see you soon. All right. Take care. Thanks, everyone.